This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Season 10 of the Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about their programs and residencies, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. When someone says the words, the Middle Ages, what's the first thing you think about? Perhaps it's the word dark. Dark, meaning not like there wasn't sunshine or that things were unbearably awful. Though, of course, both of those were naturally true at various stages of this nearly 1,000-year span of history. But dark, as in the Dark Ages, a time where nothing flourished from a cultural or artistic standpoint. All the great works and innovations from ancient Rome, poof, gone, replaced by a strangely and crudely painted or sculpted figure. It's a common question that is still lobbed about quite frequently. Why is medieval art so bad? In fact, when you type in the words, why is medieval art, into Google, as I did for an experiment, you'll find that the words so bad actually autofill first as a suggestion in your search. It's all over YouTube, Quora, Reddit, and elsewhere. And in 2019, The Guardian newspaper in the UK posted this as an online question from a reader hoping that other readers would chime in with their own answers and theories. Because, yeah, on the surface, works made in the Dark Ages don't look so amazing. But could all of that be a lie? Or bad PR? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. In this season, season 10, we're going to dig deep into some great art historical facts and fictions. In this episode, we're challenging that old chestnut about the medieval period. Were the Middle Ages in Europe an artistic and cultural wasteland? This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. I admit that I made it out of my undergraduate studies in art history without taking any courses on medieval art. And I also confess that I don't remember us looking at a lot of examples of medieval art in my art history surveys, other than the occasional icon of the Virgin and Child, or to highlight some important architectural monuments from that era. So it wasn't until I was in my first year of graduate school that I took courses specializing in this often neglected area of art. And not even just neglected, but misunderstood, too. What I learned was that medieval art is fascinating. It is colorful, golden, glittering. It's thoughtful. It's religious. It's daring. And it was a hot source of debate even in its own time. 
Before we debunk the whole, the Middle Ages were artistically lacking myth, we've got to first establish why and how this idea took hold. And we have an example of a highly public thinker who might be responsible for this very misguided idea. In the 1330s, a period that many consider to be a bridge between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in Western Europe, one of the most famous writers in Italy and beyond was Petrarch, a poet and scholar whose opinion was that in the nearly thousand-year gap between the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 CE and Petrarch's own enlightened time, that everything sucked. And it stems back to Petrarch's personal adulation of all things ancient Greco-Roman. Take, for example, ancient Greek sculptures like the so-called Artemisian bronze, a figure that's probably representing Zeus or Poseidon and now in the collection of the National Archaeological Museum of Athens, or the Capitoline Venus from Rome's Capitoline Museum. In both of these cases, they showcase Greco-Roman gods and goddesses as gorgeous ideals of human beauty, symmetry, strength, and grace. They are, in an anatomical and even perhaps a mathematical sense, perfect. And at the dawning of the Renaissance, it was exactly these kind of sculptures that made Petrarch swoon. And he was not alone in this swooning, of course. If you were part of my course on women artists of Renaissance Europe from avid.fm, and it's never too late to join this evergreen class at avid.fm jennifer, then you already will know that one of the big things about the Renaissance was this renewed interest in all things ancient Greece and Rome. After the fall of the Roman Empire then, everything changed. And in Petrarch's eyes, artwork no longer had what he referred to as the light of classical learning which had flourished until that point. That classical learning was purportedly rediscovered, and I'm definitely using air quotes here, at the dawn of the Renaissance, leading to a fantastic rebirth. That's what Renaissance literally translates to. And all of this was a rebirth in Greco-Roman artistic styles, ideas, literature, and so much more. Before that rebirth, though, Petrarch was just certain that things were awful, just terrible. To be fair, Petrarch was probably a little smug about the greatness of his own era, but he contrasted his time so greatly with that of the medieval period that it is he who seems to have first been the one who coined the term the Dark Ages. And really, even the phrase Middle Ages isn't necessarily a friendly one, because it assumes that that interim period between antiquity and the Renaissance was just that a long middle period of waiting, an infertile waypoint between two otherwise incredible time periods. It's kind of insulting, and it was very untrue. Now, to progress today, I must make a couple other things clear. First is that we are referring to the medieval period as a period in Europe, but especially a period in Western Europe. So we're focusing today on the kind of works created mostly in Italy, France, and other Western European countries. At the same time, though, there's a lot of overlap between the Western European Middle Ages slash medieval period and the Byzantine era, which bled into the West during the 1200-year rule of the Byzantine Empire, which, at its height, stretched from the Middle East across Greece to cover most of modern-day Italy, and then circled around the eastern and southern Mediterranean Sea 
to include a large expanse of northern Africa, too. So we're going to cover a little bit of each, even though there are actually some solid differences between them. Too many, in fact, to get into through just one episode. So please holler at me on social media or through our website to let me know if you're clamoring for some Byzantine goodness. Overall, though, today's discussion will help us understand the wealth and breadth of amazing art and architecture that was created during this non-Dark Age. Okay, now that that has been cleared up, we've got to talk about Christianity, because the point at which the religion gained a significant foothold in Europe coincided with the fall of the Roman Empire. And much, though not all, of medieval art reflects this spread and continual growth of this juggernaut of a faith system. Christianity, prior to the early 4th century CE, had been outlawed during the Roman Empire, which preferred a polytheistic belief system that predicated the worship of multiple gods and goddesses. After it was legalized in the Roman Empire in 313, Christianity spread so quickly that it became the state religion only a few decades later in 380. And the visual arts needed to keep in step with these changing times. In short, it needed to innovate. So gone were all of those super idealized images of Mars and Venus, the gods, not the planets, or of the emperors in the guise of Jupiter or other deities, which was done so that Roman emperors could effectively be worshipped, or at least compared favorably, to gods as well. Instead, these pagan artworks needed to be replaced by works of art that helped explain the main gist of Judeo-Christian thought, which was no small feat. How can you describe so much in a single visual space or a specific physical location, especially for a huge swath of people to whom the entire religion was super brand new? And to complicate matters, what about the fact that many of these same people were illiterate, unable to read or at least not to read well? The answer was something of a throwback, a system that had been in use for thousands of years and was truly one of the earliest ways of creating art back in the Neolithic period. They opted instead to rely on simplified forms and symbols. So think back to all of those cave paintings and simple Venus sculptures that we discussed in last season's spate of A Little Curious. The earliest artists boiled down animal and human forms to the barest of necessities. And the same works here for medieval artists. Ain't nobody got time to spare on making an ultra-realistic, highly detailed scene when all of a sudden you've got to explain a lot of things. Who is God the Father? Who is Jesus? And what's his story? And what the heck is the Holy Spirit? And what are the Ten Commandments all about? When you think about it, even with the growth of Christianity during this time, it was still potentially an overwhelming ask and a lot of buy-in would have been required of devotees. So artists made the whole business easier by boiling everything down to the basics, with symbols developed to quickly share the most pertinent details. A number of these symbols were developed in secret catacombs and hiding places that were established in Rome by early Christians before their religion's legalization. And many are images that we still actually use today. Think about the fish to represent Jesus, the cross to represent Christianity or Christian thought in general, and so forth. But most importantly, they wanted to share the stories of Jesus' life and teachings in a clear and understandable way. So narrative paintings, images that strove to tell a story, really became necessary. Everything was simplified to the essentials, 
Kind of like how in a comic strip you might see only a few scribbles or lines that are brought together to illustrate a person's face. And this, this right here, is what Petrarch and so many others used as a means of criticizing medieval art, calling it bad in comparison with ancient and Renaissance standards. Remember that during those periods, having a super intensely lifelike rendition of the human body, but also a perfect and idealized one, let's not forget, that was the ultimate goal. Not so here. Artists simply changed their modes of working to be able to better create for their audiences, and thus their new patrons, the Christian church itself and its newly converted supplicants. Coming up next, we're talking icons and their use in medieval art. But then what happens when your artwork is questioned as a false idol? Stay tuned right after this quick break. Listeners to Art Curious will know that I love talking about women who happen to be artists. And I just watched this amazing program called Women Art Revolution on Wondrium. And unsurprisingly, I loved it. This film poses that all-important and timeless question. Can you name three women artists? And of course, it is so difficult for so many people. But I also learned so many other interesting things that I didn't know, like that one of the earliest feminist demonstrations was staged at the 1968 Miss America contest. I loved watching this on the Wondrium app while I was doing work around the house because I just love to download the audio portion and listen as if I'm just listening to one of my favorite podcasts. With Wondrium, there's thousands of hours of content to watch or listen to, all available to stream anytime and anywhere. That includes documentaries, travelogues, tutorials, and more, all designed to make learning fun. And a subscription to Wondrium makes a great gift. It is perfect for anyone who likes to embrace their inner nerd or for the knowledge-hungry and the curious. So take it from me, a Wondrium subscription will be the gift that keeps on giving. Learn more about gifting at my special URL, wondrium.com art. And while you are there, sign up for your own free trial. Go to w-o-n-d-r-i-u-m dot art. Don't wait. That's wondrium.com art. Donating money to help people can be a wonderful and selfless act. But how can you feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? You could do weeks of research to find out charities that are out there, or you could visit GiveWell.org. There you'll get a short, vetted list of the best charities they've found at saving or improving lives per dollar given. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest impact evidence-based charities that they've found. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save tens of thousands of lives and improve the lives of millions more. And here's the best part. GiveWell is free. GiveWell wants to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site with no sign-up required. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose without taking a cut. After learning about them on GiveWell.org, I decided to donate to the Malaria Consortium, which is a seasonal malaria chemo prevention program to prevent malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $250 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. 
To claim your match, go to givewell.org, pick podcast, and enter Art Curious Podcast at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from Art Curious to get your donation matched. Givewell.org, pick podcast, and enter Art Curious Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome back to Art Curious. After the Roman Empire split into two, with the western portion of the empire centered in Rome and the eastern one based in Constantinople, now Istanbul in modern-day Turkey, the need to have visual representation of God, after centuries of doing so with pagan traditions, that need still held strong, and thus the icon, sacred images representing holy figures, became central to European art. These icons not only showcased Jesus and or God the Father, but also the Virgin Mary and other important saints and holy figures. Today, when we think of icons, we probably mostly picture gilded wooden panels. But in the medieval era, icons could be crafted from all kinds of materials and came in all different sizes and shapes. So you'd have icons carved out of marble, ivory, presented in frescoes and mosaics, woven into tapestries, and even carved into tiny gemstones or made of precious metals. The icons became hugely popular and thus prominent as a work of art. Because not only did the works of art provide a focal point for prayer and contemplation while attending church, but smaller handheld ones, which were sometimes worn as pendants or necklaces, enabled personal use too. Essentially, believers could then take their God and saints with them and use the icon as a reminder to pray at will. And surely this helped with the spread of Christianity, too, if everyone had their own little icon to hold on to. There are many wonderful examples of these throughout the world, but I love this little tiny cameo now located at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, just barely over an inch tall, made of a soft stone that has been carved to present us with the face of Jesus. It's been so worn down that you can just imagine how this tiny little icon would have been pocketed and rubbed with a thumb over and over, just worried down so that you can hardly see Christ's nose anymore. It's an artwork made as a tool of worship, one that could be taken anywhere and everywhere. And you can see an image of this, by the way, on our blog for today's episode. After the first few centuries of the medieval era, a hiccup arose. A big hiccup, in fact. Though the visualization of a god, any god, in art, had long been a tradition for thousands of years, Christian theologians began to push back on this concept after interpreting one of the Ten Commandments as relating specifically to artworks. In the Old Testament of the Bible, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, it reads, and I quote, God expressly forbade the Israelites from making any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth, Now, there's been a very long debate about these lines, and they've been up to interpretation since, well, since they were apparently handed down to Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai. But during the Middle Ages, 
theologians began wondering if this didn't just refer to avoiding the worship of any other spiritual being, but any visual representation of any spiritual being, including the Christian God himself. You might see the problem here. All of those icons and narratives about God and Jesus and art suddenly looked bad, sinful even, and people got confused as to whether they were worshiping God or a picture of God, which would then be considered a so-called false idol. And this is where we see a huge spate of iconoclasm, especially in the 8th and 9th centuries CE. Iconoclasm, which translates to image-breaking in ancient Greece, was a movement in which icons, or indeed any visual rendition of God, were destroyed because of a concern that devotees were venerating the image of God instead of God itself. This goes a long way to explaining why we don't have a glut of objects remaining from the early medieval and Byzantine periods in art history, because a lot of it was simply destroyed. The good news is that iconoclasm simmered down by the middle of the 9th century, and heading into the 10th century CE, there was actually a resurgence of the icon and of representation of God, Jesus, and other revered figures in a bodily form in art. Old habits die hard, as the saying goes. And truly, art was just too important to the continual growth and understanding of Christianity. But just as art had to change and innovate to meet its needs during the earliest years of the medieval era, so it had to change, too, when we reached the mid-Byzantine and the so-called Carolingian period of Western European art. And that's coming up right after this break. Please come right back. After hours of dedicated research, nothing feels better than having that satisfaction of finally finding the information I've been looking for for the latest episode of Art Curious. You can get that same incredible feeling when you've been able to find your next great hire after your candidate search with Indeed. And if you are hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible. You can do it all, attract, interview, and hire at Indeed. One of the things I love most about Indeed is that they are able to make everything happen in one place and so easily, and that they partner with you on every single step of the process so that you can find the person with the right talents and skills that you need by using tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and you can do virtual interviews right there on Indeed. Indeed makes it easier for star applicants to shine with over 135 assessment tests from cooking to coding. And you can pick what skills are important to you and get a clearer view of your top talents abilities faster. Assessments make the interview process smoother for everyone. With Indeed assessments, you can reduce hiring time by 12% according to Indeed data worldwide. So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com art. That's a $75 credit at indeed.com art. Offer valid through December 31st, terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by BetterHelp. There have truly been times in my life where I've needed some assistance to figure out what I wanted from life and how to find the happiness I deserved. And that's why I turned to BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is here to help you too. With BetterHelp, a professional can assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist with whom you can begin communicating in less than 48 hours. And it is so convenient because you can connect from wherever you are in a safe and private online environment, and you can message, call, or video chat with your therapist, all instead of commuting somewhere and sitting uncomfortably in a waiting room. And BetterHelp also makes it easy to find the right therapist for you. Whether you're looking for help with depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, LGBT matters, self-esteem, or anything, and you don't have to limit yourself to someone who works near your home. Believe me, I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy. And I loved my counselor I connected with. And even if I didn't, it would have been so easy and free to change counselors if I wanted. It's confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It is professional counseling done securely. And check this out. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As an Art Curious listener, you're important to me. And so I want you to start living a happier life today. By visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling by visiting betterhelp.com artcurious. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's at betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. Okay, here we are. Iconoclasm is sort of in the rearview mirror, but fears about eternal damnation from accidentally worshipping an icon is still palpable. If you are a craftsman or an artist, then, what were you going to do to solve this dilemma? Artists got around it by avoiding one thing. Realism. If you've ever seen a medieval icon, you know right off the bat that the figure of Christ or the Virgin Mary or whomever that is shown therein is flat. Its features almost geometric in their simplification. Because, yes, thousands of years before the dawn of the 20th century, artists were already toying with abstraction. There's no shading, no depth in these images, and in many ways, they seem almost like they're just a few steps up from being stick figures. Okay, well, they're better than that, but still, you get my point. And this was very intentional. Very, very intentional. By not appearing realistic in any way, there would be less of a risk of someone feeling like they were worshipping a real, spiritual figure. Because remember, there was a long history of modeling gods and goddesses off the human body. So, visualizing the Christian god as an old white dude, that still felt super necessary at this point. But when your image of god is almost cartoon-like in its rejection of the illusion of depth and space, it's easier for our minds to think, oh, right, yeah. That isn't really God. It's a stand-in for God. This simplification is what Petrarch got wrong. He read this as an error, a lack of knowledge of perspective or of classical artistic training and technique, when it was actually an innovation to avoid connotations of idolatry. Take, for example, a fresco of Christ formerly in the Church of St. Clement de Taoul by the so-called Master of Taoul. An image of this is posted on the blog today as well. This image is called, in medieval parlance, a Christ Panocrator, which is a specific representation of Jesus as the Almighty. 
He's dressed in blue robes and sporting some pretty hefty eyebrows. But this Jesus looks not a lot like your typical ancient Roman guy just walking down the street. He definitely has more in common with a comic strip. He's all bold lines, flattened space, and basic rendition of the simplest and most necessary of body parts. Not that all imagery in medieval painting was all flat, though. In private commissions in particular, artists had more freedom, and so they were able to model the human form however they'd like. And, of course, there was sculpture, too, which required, in many cases, the need or ability to show a figure on all sides. Or, if you have a relief sculpture, at least to showcase in some depth. Sometimes, all you have to do is look at the robe of a stone saint on a cathedral's exterior to see just how its pleats evoke that just-so precision of a Roman toga. Or the way that someone's knee might be angled to break through the flatness of a carved scene. Medieval artists were looking at classical art. And by classical, I mean ancient Rome and Greece for some inspiration and foundation for their own artworks. And speaking of classical art, it was still very much appreciated and celebrated during these so-called Dark Ages. The study of literature and documents from ancient Rome and Greece did not stop during the medieval period. Think now of illuminated manuscripts, those gorgeous jewel-toned texts surrounded by illustrations and decorative borders. When we think of illuminated manuscripts, many of us, and I'm including myself here, automatically think of religious texts, things like Bible passages or prayer books that were meticulously copied by nuns and monks. The learned religious folk didn't just keep busy with religious tracts, but also preserved centuries worth of knowledge about science, anatomy, philosophy, and so much more, much of it stemming from the ancient world. Many of these documents were stored away in libraries and manuscript archives to preserve this knowledge. But just because it wasn't used daily by the farmer down the road doesn't mean that there wasn't this interest, this passion for the ancient past, that it had disappeared. Truly, the reason that we have the works by people like Virgil and Cicero today, and really most of the great works that were done in the ancient Latin language, they have survived because they were meticulously studied and preserved during this period. And yet there were more innovations that sometimes get forgotten or misremembered. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In the medieval era, for the first time in centuries, learning and education were taken seriously. So seriously, in fact, that it was during this time period that the first universities in the world were established, such as the University of Bologna, which opened in 1088, or Oxford University, which was established by no later than 1167, though some documents suggest that teaching at a broader level had begun there as early as 1096. New ideas were being discussed and disseminated at a breakneck pace. Amazing works of world literature were being produced. All these things that we still read and interpret today, like Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and Dante's Divine Comedy. 
there were also significant innovations in the world of architecture, with the late medieval period bringing forth Gothic cathedrals like Chartres and Notre Dame and incredible Byzantine structures like the famed Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. It was an incredibly rich period in European history, one that grows even richer when we understand the context and current events that affected the creation of works of art during this period. I just wish that Petrarch had understood a little bit more of the context, realizing that the flatness that he had despised as a weak artistic trait was a thoughtful consideration and a deliberate tweaking of tradition. And after all, isn't that what we see over and over again in art history? Generations of artists reacting to the generations before? That same kind of responsiveness would affect the Italian Renaissance, too, that golden era that Petrarch and others so plainly extolled for its idealism and adherence to perfection. If you're a fan of mannerism, a kind of subcategory of the late period of the Renaissance, then this might make some sense. Mannerist artworks, like Parmigianino's famed Madonna with the long neck, today in the Uffizi in Florence, isn't idealized at all. Our Madonna's neck curves outward, seeming to contain one or more vertebrae than anatomically possible. Perspective and space are super distorted and weird, and the whole thing, in short, is just wonky. And what better way to break from tradition than to do something delightfully weird and different? And weird and wonderfully different are awesome words that go so far to describe medieval art. Speaking of weird, coming up next time on the Art Curious Podcast, we're throwing it back to one of the earliest episodes of our show with updates to ask a big question about an artist we've already discussed this season. Is a famed Renaissance painter and sculptor actually super bad at representing women? That's coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks to Bryn Robbins for her research help. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their show, Subgenre, season one available now. Please visit subgenrepodcast.com for more. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means that you can donate tax-free during this holiday season to Art Curious to show your support. To find our links for donations and more details, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. You can also find us on social media at Art Curious Pod. Check back with us in two weeks as we continue to explore the facts and fictions surrounding the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. ¶¶